Welcome to our Advice and Insights podcast, a special series on the case for dividend growth, investing in a post-crisis world. What we're doing here is a series of talks, including some excerpts from the book itself to help capture the investment philosophy known as dividend growth investing that we have made a cornerstone to our practice at the Bonson Group. The book, The Case for Dividend Growth, has just come out and represents my best work and best case and argument for the investment methodology that we believe is at the cornerstone of a truly efficient client experience. We look forward to getting your feedback through this Advice and Insights podcast on the dividend growth orientation. Chapter 5, Withdrawal Mechanics Matter, Avoiding the Poison of Negative Compounding as you tap your nest egg to live happily ever after. I kind of suspect if there's a chapter in the book that's going to make people say, you know what, I've read everything uh, David's talking about, and uh, I, I kind of wonder if I'm doing things the right way. Is there, is there a better way that I need to think about things? Am I doing something wrong now? I think it may be this chapter. And the reason is this. On the accumulation side that we talked about in the prior recording, if indeed the market is still going higher, people don't feel the need to accumulate with compounding or prices because they just feel like, hey, everything's going up, it's going great, who cares? It is when you're withdrawing from a portfolio that stops cooperating with you that all of a sudden you realize that you are perhaps facing a fatal outcome. And this brings me back to the earlier uh, recordings uh, about that fateful decade that began our new century and, in fact, new millennium uh, for, that was bookended by the dot-com drop and the, and the uh, financial crisis, is that you had this sort of lost decade and you have an S&P 500 that has indeed averaged historically a rate of return that's perfectly adequate to meet people's withdrawal needs and accumulation needs and all that good stuff. And yet, if one had been withdrawing systematically from the S&P 500 throughout those 10 years, they either would each year have been taking likely less money if they did it as a fixed percentage of the value at the end of each year, or if they just kind of kept the amount constant they would have deteriorated a significant amount over half of their capital because they would have been withdrawing from a portfolio that would have recovered in price, but it would have recovered with less money in it because you had been withdrawing it during those periods of distress. It is the phenomena that we call negative compounding, and it can be fatal to an investor, and it's why investing from an asset when it is dropping in value can be a very big deal, and particularly if it lasts for a sustained period of time. And so one of the things that was so persuasive for me when I became evangelized into the world of dividend growth investing is how these really dramatic periods, whether you're talking about 1966 to 1981 or whether you're talking about 2000 to 2009, when you look at longer periods of time where the stock market's total return did not cooperate and you look at how the dividend growth investor did when they were just sort of living off of these dividends, regardless of what the underlying market prices of the companies were doing, um, it, it is unbelievable the way in which it served to protect capital 
and certainly protect the income stream for the withdrawer, who often may be a retiree without the ability to replenish those funds. So not only the historical back-testing of this very reality, but the common-sense logic of it that I read here from the book. A withdrawer from growing dividends can insulate themselves against the concerns of market fluctuations. The price level may be zigging and zagging, but the income is still growing nice and steady regardless. But then secondly, and this is so important, they can actually achieve a pay increase year over year. A dividend growth portfolio is to return, well, dividend growth, growth of the dividends themselves. Retirees do not want their income reduced, but nor do they want to deplete their principal when withdrawals exceed market returns in tough market conditions. But see, they also have another objective as well to have their income grow. And, and by the way, that may be because of inflation. It may be grow to keep up with inflationary pressures on what uh, things cost at the price level in the economy. But it may be because they want to kind of improve lifestyle year over year as well. Give better gifts to grandkids, take better vacations. So we're not merely looking for the ability to insulate from market fluctuation by still having the same level of income but you want a growing level of income. Cash flow is growing from the portfolio regardless of market conditions. This enables the investor to enjoy what that represents with an agnostic view of market prices. Now, a lot of people could look to the bond market and say, okay, well, I'm just going to get a sort of steady rate of income. And I think there's some sensibility to that. Interest rates in the bond market are very low, but the fact of the matter is, that you generally don't have to worry as much about the effect of stock market volatility because bond prices, obviously, assuming, you know, the stability of the issuer of the bond, you have the guarantee of your principal back when the bond matures. But I do want to say two things that I think are really bizarre about the way so many people monetize withdrawals when we know that people need spending throughout the retirement, that prices are going to go higher, and we know that bond yields, the interest rates in the economy, very often not just can, but do go lower. Number one, it is so bizarre that there are so many people counting on a linear withdrawal from equity prices when those equity prices are subject to decline. And that so many people are dependent on a linear withdrawal from bond coupons, which are themselves subject to decline. Bonds mature and get reinvested at lower interest rate all the time. The fact of the matter is that there is a third option, and that is a linear or fluctuating withdrawal, your choice, from equity dividends, which if properly managed would not be subject to decline and in fact would allow for the growth of that income. So you get freedom of choice in the amount withdrawn, I'm reading from the book, a constant amount or a fluctuating one, but fluctuating up. And the elimination of the great risk that the two aforementioned options, linear withdrawals from the S&P or from bonds, could inherently expose you to a decline in value that is being withdrawn upon for cash flow needs. Now, of course, a fair objection would be, well, those dividends themselves are not guaranteed. And that becomes a very important future chapter of the book. 
for why the necessity of sustained dividend growth, not just across the whole portfolio, which is most important and technically good enough, but even on a case-by-case basis, um, is so important for one who is committed to dividend growth investing. But I conclude our talk right now with the same conclusion of the chapter in the book. No discussion of this topic will ever come to a different conclusion than this. The less you withdraw from principle, the longer your money will last. And our goal as dividend growth investors is to feed the cash flow needs of our clients today as well as tomorrow. And with tomorrow now covering longer and longer periods of time, the stakes are higher to ensure that one's investment strategy during any withdrawal period has durability and common sense. A withdrawal of a robust, growing stream of dividends offers both. Chapter 6, Opportunity Cost Myth. Why Dividend Growth Investing is Not a Return Consolation Prize. I think that there is nothing more frustrating to me as a dividend growth portfolio manager than hearing people say, oh, we think you're right about the mechanical benefits for an accumulator and all that compounding stuff. And we think you're right about the mechanical benefits for a withdrawer and how it kind of helps insulate them from declining equity prices. And we think you're right that it kind of leads to, you know, a higher quality of company and better alignment with management, better signal from the company about their own prospects going forward. In other words, sort of asserting and and validating the premises, but then saying, however, the total return that this strategy will give even though it'll be less risk and we'll have more mechanical advantages, I'd have to give up some return through time and that's not worth it to me. And first of all, it strikes me as silly that someone would just say uh, on its face that all those mechanical advantages and sort of ideological arguments could be true and yet they believe the end result would not be. But it also just empirically frustrates me because it ignores the actual data of how the dividend growers have performed in the market versus the overall market for so many years. And so we use chapter six of the book to just load up chart after chart of how dividend growth investments have done, the dividend areas of the market, the risk levels they've taken on, the returns they've generated relative to other aspects of the market over all different timelines. And of course, there are periods in a given year where some real hot technology stocks are gonna outperform your dividend growth stocks. And and there will be periods where one could appeal to, if I had only been invested in this hot company or these fast growers, I could have done better. But when you look at the historical averages over longer periods of time, It is beyond compelling to see how the sustainability, the high quality, the mathematical benefits of of their dividend compounding have played out to generate a better result than any of these different alternatives. And one of the things I do in Chapter 6 that is just fascinating to me is compare the utility index, obviously known for being kind of high dividend payers, to the NASDAQ since the NASDAQ started back in the 1970s. So I'm not cherry picking a certain period of time. This is a very long period of time. 
And the NASDAQ, known for its hot technology companies, uh, you know, certainly for most of the NASDAQ over most of the years, it's had little or no dividend exposure, but it's had these massive returns, stock prices running up so big. And in fact, if you just look at the price of the NASDAQ from when it started in the early 1970s to when I was writing this chapter of the book about a year ago, the NASDAQ was up 6,870%. And the utility sector was only up 470%. I mean, a massively big outperformance of the NASDAQ over utilities. On a price basis, the NASDAQ beat the boring utility sector by 6,400% over the last, uh, let's call it, 47 years. But then, let's throw in the dividends. When you add in the dividends, these boring little utility companies that have such little price growth versus technology, the lifeblood of the economy, the digital revolution, the greatest growth sector in the market— And guess what? The total return of the utility sector is 800% higher than the growth-oriented NASDAQ, a difference of 0.21% in return per year annually for 47 years. And obviously, that improved return result has taken place with a fraction of the volatility. Now, am I trying to suggest that utilities are a better investment than technology? Of course not. In fact, I talked in an earlier recording about how so many great mature technology companies are now themselves big dividend payers, big dividend growers. I'm making a comparison to reflect what is nothing more than a mathematical reality of reinvested income that utilities have done how they've done because of the fact that their dividend growth has played into the compounding of their returns over time. And no matter how exciting some hot social media company or technology company's fast move up may be, that in real life, that return has not, in fact, kept up. Dividend growth universe gives us two embedded benefits we find attractive that we've already talked about in earlier recordings. Management that's aligned with shareholders and managing the income statement to create stable growing earnings and a mathematical structure that gives enhanced compounding to accumulators and the avoidance of negative compounding for withdrawers. Okay, well, you get all that. And those benefits are evergreen and timeless. But in real time periods, they've proven to be a better total return proposition with lower volatility than so many of their peers. I will not suggest that dividend growth is only a better solution because it is lower risk or a little feel safer. That's fallacious. The historical realities are that in the right amount of time periods being studied, Dividend growth has not only provided those other benefits and advantages we've talked about, but done so with a better overall result. So, Mr. Utility, to read from the closing of the chapter, wants credit for his defeat of Mr. NASDAQ. And Mr. Income wants credit for carrying Mr. Utility across the finish line. Thank you for listening to this Advice and Insight special podcast series covering the case for dividend growth. 
We hope you have found it enlightening and at least giving you a taste of what it is we believe at the cornerstone of our investment process. Of course, we really do encourage you to buy a copy of The Case for Dividend Growth or reach out to us and maybe we'll get you a copy. We want you to read the whole book, not just merely rely on the podcast, but we do hope that this has given you a taste of the arguments that we make for dividend growth investing and giving you a better foundation to understanding the investment methodology itself. Thank you for listening to Advice and Insights Podcast. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and it's not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.